church, let's take our Bibles. Let's go to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. We will start there as Justin started us there last week, and then we will make our way over in the Gospel of John to John chapter 13. Good to see you this morning. Two weeks till Easter. Anybody excited? And uh, what, a, what a time it's going to be. Um, you know, every, every day is Easter. I don't say that as cliche, but every day is Easter because Christ rose never to die again. And for us, every day, get crunk in the back, that's what I'm talking about. Every day as the believer, when we pray and when we sing, yes, we do look back, but for the believer, for the Christian, our life is not lived in memorial. Our life is lived with hope because, did you know this moment right now, Jesus is alive. He hears what we sing. He hears what we pray. He sees us as we live. So we're looking forward to Easter as you've rolled out of a gospel-driven message series where rethinking what the church looks like, focused on the outside. Let's send people to our community and to the world. Let's be the church and live out the gospel at the same token, when we gather, we look around and we're encouraged by each other and we are here for each other. And we're going to see that demonstrated today. But look in John chapter 2. Let's read through a few verses at the end of the chapter to set our minds again towards Easter. John chapter 2, verse 23. Now, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. At the beginnings of Jesus' ministry, he's doing these signs, and people, at least externally, at least on the outward, it appears that they're believing in him. But Justin said it best last week, literally in the Greek it says, that Christ did not have faith in their faith. I think Justin said it last week, he did not believe their belief. Because real faith doesn't come from just outward appearance. Real faith comes from the heart. Real faith comes from the will. Real faith is a surrendering to who Jesus is. And what we found out last week as we read this passage is that Jesus doesn't need anybody to give him the scoop on the human heart. He doesn't need anybody to give him the, the cliff notes or exhibit A. Jesus being the creator of all men, being the Lord of all men, he knows the human heart. What I want you to see, maybe a little uniquely this morning, as we start this way, is that Jesus knows everyone's heart, and so what salvation is, is not you giving your heart to Jesus, it's Jesus giving his heart to you. It's not you giving your life to Jesus as so much as it is Christ giving his life to you. Jesus, take my life, they said. Jesus, we believe in you. But Jesus did not give himself to them. Did you know for the believer, Jesus has given his life to you twice? Once 2,000 years ago on the cross when he substituted himself in your place for your sin. But when you're born again, when you're converted, when you're justified, when you're adopted, when you become a Christian, at that moment, Jesus gives his life to you. You're alive in Christ. And what do we find this morning? What we looked at last week is that at the beginning of the Gospel of John, at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, Jesus knew that there were going to be a bunch of people that really didn't believe him. 
That there were going to be a bunch of people that would not truly follow him. They would flake out and fall away, showing that they never followed him to begin with. And yet, what did he do? He set his face towards Jerusalem anyway. Are you thankful this morning that Christ pursued you when you didn't respond to him? Are you thankful this morning that even after hearing the gospel once or twice or maybe three or four or five times, in your unbelief, in your not true faith, Jesus still pursued you. He set his face to die for you because he knew one day you would turn and believe. I'm so thankful for a patient Christ. This morning, as we turn over to John chapter 13, go there if you would. This is where we'll camp out for the message this morning. Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem to die for us. But I want us to see this morning also that Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem to serve us. What I want you to grab this morning is gospel fuel for service. The gospel not only, as we look towards Easter, shows that Christ died for us, but it also shows that Christ served us. And our responsibility as a believer is to be like Christ and serve other people. In order to fully grasp what Jesus has done for us, the heart that grasps the sacrifice of Christ will be the heart that embraces the service of Christ. John chapter 13, let's begin reading in verse 1. John 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. This morning, we're going to go back to the upper room. Last week, in Luke 22, before you took communion as a church, where were you? Where was the text putting us? Luke chapter 22. We're in the upper room. It's the night before the cross. And what did we learn last week that the Lord instituted for us? He instituted what we call the Lord's Supper. Some call it communion. Paul called it the Lord's Supper. Typically, we use that because that's apostolic language. But what it was, it was a to put in place a visual, continual reminder in the lives of those that would follow Jesus, this is what the Son of God did for you. As we look forward to Easter, Easter Sunday morning exists because Good Friday exists. The lamb could rise because the lamb was first sacrificed. And so last week we saw that because of the sacrifice of Christ, he has created this community called the church. From every tongue, every tribe, every language, every nation. Aren't you glad there's going to be more than Americans in heaven? Amen? Going to be more than Baptists in heaven? Dude, if it was just Baptists in heaven, it would be a boring place, wouldn't it, right? 
Man, all types of people from all over the nations, Jesus is going to draw people to himself. That's why if we send missionaries to somewhere that's never heard the gospel, there's going to be success because every tongue and every tribe will come ultimately to Christ. Every people group will be represented before the Lamb. And through the sacrifice of Jesus, he has produced this people called his bride, his church. But within that community of twice-born people, there is a need for us to serve each other. And I think, based off this text, Easter teaches us how we gospelly, if that's a word, serve each other. Notice, if you would, in verse 1, that John mentions Passover. This is a theme throughout John. Forefront in the mind of John the Apostle when he's writing this gospel is this concept of lamb. Chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist points at Jesus and he goes, this is the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And throughout the book of John, you find three Passovers. One in chapter 2, we just read it. One in chapter 6, here in chapter 13, signifying the three different years that Jesus was ministering. When you run across a Passover in John, he's letting you know one year's passed. John chapter six, two years have passed. John chapter 13, this is the third year of ministry. And if you look at what happened before John two, you realize that Christ had already been ministering maybe six to eight months. So by the time that he is, dies for our sin and rises again, he's been active in ministry for, for over three years. And what is throughout John is that you find Jesus saying, I've come to be your substitute. In chapter 3, I'm the bronze serpent that's lifted up. I'm the son that's given. In chapter 6, I'm the bread of life that is given for the, for the life of the world. In John chapter 10, I'm the good shepherd that lays his life down for his sheep. In John 15, I'm the friend that dies for my friends. So... First and foremost in the mind of John here is that he's saying, Passover, lamb, substitute. And so Jesus here, on the same night as what we looked at last week, he is hanging out with his disciples. And did you see what Jesus knew when we read through this? Verse 1, Jesus knew that his hour had come. Verse 2, Jesus knew that Judas was about to betray him. Verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hands. Jesus knew that he had come from God. Jesus knew that he was going back to God. What you see here, the night before Jesus dies, is not a panicky Christ running here and there. Let me tie up loose ends before I die tomorrow. You see a Jesus knowing all things, absolutely in full control of all things, and doing everything to the glory of God according to the will of the Father. Man, it's an awesome picture. I mean, if I knew I was going to die tomorrow, man, I'd, be, I'd get busy today, right? Jesus is not hurrying about. He is set upon in this passage teaching the disciples how and what it means to serve because of the gospel. How in the world do we serve? Or what are our motivations to serve? Serving because of the gospel as we look forward to Easter, the fuel for it, what drives us in this passage really Three things that should be brought to our mind. Three components that drive us to serve. First, I want you to see the cost of Christ's sacrifice. Jesus knows that it's time. In verse 1, 
It says he knew his hour had come. All throughout John, over and over again, it's like five times. They tried to seize him. They tried to arrest him, but they couldn't because his hour had not yet come. Like the whole city's coming after him. Can't do it. Why? His hour hadn't come. But Jesus knows now this is the sovereign hour. This is the sovereign moment for the Son of Man to be glorified. This is the precise, exact divine appointment for Jesus to go and die for us. Incredible in verse 3, even though he's going to be handed over to the Gentiles and the Jews, he knows the Father has given all things into his hands. And with this knowledge, because oftentimes in our society when people know who they are, what do that do? Well, I'm going to do this. The Luke Johnson approach, I'm your customer. You're going to do this, right? That doesn't get you very far. I just, from deep experience, if you're trying to ask someone to take credit on your cell phone bill, don't, don't remind them who you are, okay? It, humility is the best approach. And oftentimes in our world, when people have full knowledge of who they are, it leads them to rise up. Notice... Because he knew his hour had come, even though he knows Judas is about to betray him, even though he knows the Father has given all things into his hands, he had come from God, he was going back to God. What does he do in verse 4? He rises up, he takes off his outer garment, he puts a towel around his waist, he pours water in a basin, and he begins to do something called washing his disciples' feet. Now, we're going to unpack that culturally in just a moment, and it's, I hope, man, it just blows your mind in some good ways what's going on. So they're sitting around a table, right? And it's not like what we see oftentimes painted in, you know, the Middle Ages. Jesus is in the middle, and they're just all kind of sitting down. You know, somebody redid that to make it culturally appropriate to the South, and like the disciples and Jesus were eating crawfish, okay? Like that didn't happen either. You ever seen those? You know, a big pot of crawfish right in the middle. But typically when we think of the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper here, we think of Jesus in the middle, there's a table, and they're all sitting in chairs. It wasn't like that at all. There was a table in the middle, but they were basically like leaning on couches that were in a U-shape around the table. And the way the Jews ate, they would literally lay on their side, propped up on their left hand, with their feet pointing towards the wall, and they would all just kind of lean in. They would eat with their right hand, learn how to do that in India. It, it's, it's pretty cool. If you've never eaten with your food, your mom quit letting you do it, you know, at age three. It's acceptable in some places. It was here in Jewish culture. And the Bible says, and we'll see in just a moment exactly where in the supper, but Jesus stands up and he begins to wash his disciples' feet. Before you can understand how to serve, you've got to get it in your mind, the ultimate service that Jesus has done for you. Now, can I just give you what I think is a picture of the gospel here? Notice what it says he did first in verse four. He rose, right? He rose. Then what does he do after he rises in verse four? He lays aside his outer garments. And then what does he do in verse four after that? He takes a towel and he ties it around his waist. And then what does he do in verse five? He pours water into a basin. And then what does he do? He begins to wipe his disciples' feet with the towel. Check this out, y'all. This is the gospel. I'm about to read a bunch of scripture. I don't want you to flip there. I just want you to listen to the word of God and what God has done for you in Christ. Listen to the picture that John is painting for us. Jesus rose from 
Supper. Hebrews chapter one, verse three says that Christ created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And in Hebrews, all that's pre-incarnation talk. Where was Jesus before Bethlehem? He was on a throne ruling and upholding the world by the word of his power. Like that's Jesus. John 17, five, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. What is John telling us? That Christ sacrificed himself and the road to that sacrifice was that he first rose from his throne. What did he do after he rose? It says in verse four, that he laid aside his outer garments. Jesus laid aside his glory. Philippians chapter two, verse six, although Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Scripture teaches us that when Christ rose up from his throne, he laid aside his glory. When he came here, Isaiah said, he's not somebody that you would be attracted to. He's not somebody that you would just gravitate to. And we find Jesus here picturing the emptying of himself as he comes down to the world. And then it says that he laid aside his outer garments and he took a towel and he tied it around his waist. Scripture says that Christ in in Philippians 2, he took the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men. He was found in human form. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, although Christ was rich, for your sake he became poor, that by his poverty you might become rich. And what is Jesus doing? He rises up from supper and he said, guys, I was on a throne and I rose up and I laid aside my glory and I put on your humanity. And then notice what it says that he did. He took a towel He tied it around his waist and he poured water into a basin. Man, what a picture of the outpoured life of Christ. Isaiah prophesied, because Messiah will pour out his soul to death and be numbered among the transgressors. At the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, in Matthew 26, Mark 14, and Luke 22, this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. This cup is poured out for you as the new covenant, my blood. And Jesus is saying, as I'm pouring out this water, I will tomorrow pour out my life for you. And then what does the text tell us at the end of verse five? He began to wash with this water their feet. And after he had washed them, he took this towel around his waist and he began to wipe them. Washing in the scripture is always a picture of regeneration, forgiveness. Paul tells the church at Corinth, you were in sin, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, having cleansed her by the washing with the word. Titus 3, he saved us not according to our works, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration. And in Revelation chapter 7, when the whole multitude is gathered around the throne, it says that they have made their robes white because they have washed them in the the blood of the Lamb. You see this? Am I the only one that sees this? You'll see this? Tell me, you see this? Yeah. 
What Jesus is doing is he's saying, the service that I am about to teach you, what I'm about to teach you and how you serve each other is based in how I served you. I rose up from my throne. I laid aside my glory. I assumed your humanity. I poured out my life that I might wash you with my blood. It is all of grace. It is none of works that no one can boast. And what we celebrate as we set our minds and our hearts toward Easter, is that we are saved this morning. If we are saved, we are saved because we didn't do anything but provide the sin we needed to be saved from. He did it. He rose up. He laid aside. He took on. He poured out. And he washes and he wipes his people. Several years ago, Crosspoint sent a team to India and we worked with a pastor in North India in the Himalayas. We all survived, didn't we, Doc? Yeah, we all did. Yeah, it was a few tense moments there, right? What was incredible was some of us, not me, but some of us overpacked. And there's probably still some lady in some Himalayan village that still has Paul Mitchell hair salon, like good shampoo. Remember, being under Casey Hicks and just seeing most of Slade's stuff strapped to Casey's back as well as Casey's own stuff. I went back a few years after that, and we hiked to a village that had never heard the gospel. It took us four days to get there. We, I'm not exaggerating, we crossed seven glaciers to get there. We had to cross a pass at 15,000 feet, and on day four, we looked down and we saw the village, and we made our way into the village. It's one of the most remote villages in the Himalayas. It took us, I think we, we went like 40 miles to get there on the way in. And we got there, and we were blown away. This was in early August. We were blown away because a Hindu priest had showed up. And he was in that village that week because, check this out, one day of one year, so one day in an entire year, he would come to that village, and he would sacrifice an animal to chase away evil spirits from the people. He had no knowledge of the gospel, no knowledge of Christ. And I remember the morning we sat down beside this priest and we had a copy of the New Testament in, in Hindi and we sat down and we let him read Hebrews chapter 10. And Hebrews chapter 10 says that the blood of bulls and goats will never take away sin, but Christ came and Christ offered himself one time for all and through that offering, everyone can be sanctified in Christ. You know what this Hindu priest began to say as he read God's word? This is true, this is true, this is true. Now, during that hike and coming out, like there were some perilous times. What got me through that hike was, one thought was, if I don't make it through this hike, I'll never see Lauren again. The other was, if I don't make it through this hike, I'll never eat Chick-fil-A again. That's a pretty <laughs> bold motivation. But I found myself asking this question over and over again. Is this worth it? Is this worth it? As I fell down in a mountain river, as I walked through a rock slide, is this worth it? Is this worth it? And what I found out when I got to that village and I saw how God had providentially sent someone there and how the contrasting, we're just trying to chase something away over and over again, year after year, but Christ has come and he has totally offered himself sufficiently once for all. My soul began to scream inside of me, it's worth it, it's worth it, it's worth it. Jesus is worth it. And what was the backdrop? Because he offered himself for me, I will freely offer myself for anything he calls me to do. There's times in our life, y'all, 
We're living out this gospel thing and even living this thing out inside the church gets tough. One of my Indian brothers says, to dwell with the saints above, that is glory. To dwell with the saints below, that is another story. And there's going to be times when we can get burned out, even serving within the body of Christ. And what fuels us and what pushes us, he rose up. He emptied himself. He clothed himself. He poured out his life. And he washed me. He washed you. Gospel fuel. Gospel sacrifice. I want you to see, secondly, this morning, what fuels us to serve. It's not only his costly sacrifice, but it is the humility of Christ's example. During supper, he rose. He laid aside his outer garments. He took a towel. He tied it around his waist. He poured water into a basin, and he began to wash his disciples' feet and wipe them with a towel. Now, I'm an American. You are too. It's hard for us to understand what's going on. Now, what was really funny was, you remember last week, Justin told us that right after Christ instituted the Lord's Supper, like the disciples got in an argument. Remember? The dispute was, I'm better than you. And, and some of this sprang from really how they were sitting. So I'm not going to do this because if I get down, I may not get back up. So they're all leaning in, in a horseshoe shape. Jesus is on this side. Based off how they were sitting as you read the Gospels, John was seated at the end of the table to his right. So Jesus is leaning in, all the disciples are leaning in, continues around, Simon the Zealot, Matthew, James, Andrew. Some people think Peter was probably sitting across from Jesus on this end. Now check this out. You know who had the highest place of honor? It would have been immediately to the left of Jesus. We find out that Judas was sitting there. Because Christ says, the one that I hand... The piece of bread to is the one who is my betrayer. Peter starts all kinds of stuff, right? You know, he's an instigator. I don't know who said it, but I'm not reading into the text. I'm just saying what could have sprang out? Why, had, why did this dispute start? Why, why did it start? What was going on here? It may have been because somebody was jealous that John was there, Judas was there. It may have been, okay, we're, we're starting this new thing called the church and the kingdom of God, and I'm going to be preeminent. <laughs> no, you're not, bro. Shut up. Don't you think the disciples talked to each other that way like they did? They had to have. It's the most dysfunctional group of people. If Jesus, if anybody but Jesus would have put the disciples together and say, change the world, it would have failed in like five minutes. It's the most, it is the worst selection according to human wisdom of the way that you're going to change the world, unless Christ does it. That's why it worked. So in this intimate moment, 12 disciples in Jesus, I'm going to break my body for you. My blood's going to be shed for you. <laughs> I'm the greatest. Now, let me... Go back here and tell you what's going on because this is where the part I think that will in some ways blow your mind. So they're gathering. They're gathering to eat the Passover meal as Jews would do. Jesus was obviously sitting in the place of prominence. And so this is how the Paschal Supper according to the Jews would start. The host 
The head of the company, the one who had arranged the meal, and we know that, we, we read in, in all the gospel accounts that Jesus sent Peter and John ahead. Jesus said, hey, you're going to go here, and this guy's going to be carrying this pitcher of water, and you talk to him, and he's going to take you to a room, and y'all get the supper ready. Jesus had already gone in front of the disciples. He had booked the room, <laughs> asked permission to use it. This is even amazing. Sorry to get in the, in the weeds here, but check this out. Jesus is the one who had purchased the lamb to be sacrificed. Probably the only Paschal supper that Christ himself hosted, symbolic of the fact that he was only going to offer himself once. I mean, that's so good. Like, I, I can't go any further. We, we got more to get to. So here he is, the host. Here he is, the main person at this event. And this is how the supper would start the host would take a cup and he would pass it around to everyone, and everyone would, would drink of that one cup. Later in Judaism, people had their own cup, but at that time, he would pass a cup around. Now, it is at that time when he passed the cup around, what we looked at last week. Jesus says, this cup just isn't blessing God for being providing the, the vineyard and the grapes and all that. Look, check this out. New, 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 Peter, check this. Andrew, check this. Simon, check this. this. This cup that I'm passing around has new significance because it is my blood that's poured out for you. And then Jesus would pass it around. Now check this out. When that would happen, technically the supper would begin. And right after that, the host, the head, whoever was responsible for gathering those people there in order to partake of that meal, he would then get up, he would go to the side, and he would wash his hands. That's Jewish History, that's Jewish culture. He would rise up, and when he went to the side and he washed his hands, what he was saying was, I am now consecrating myself in order that you see me as the head, that you see me as the host, that you see me as the most prominent and distinctive person of importance at this supper. I brought this supper about. I'm hosting you as a part of my supper. And so he would get up and he would wash his hands. This is precisely when Jesus stands up, takes off his outer garment, puts a towel around his waist, pours water into a basin and begins to wash the feet. It is precisely at the moment that Christ was signified as being the greatest in the room that he voluntarily became the lowest in the room. See that? Now, how were they leaning? They were leaning in, propped up on the left arm, the, the feet towards the back. The reason they did that was in Jewish culture, when you would enter someone's house, because it was an agriculture society and there are animals everywhere and where animals are, they leave presents behind and there's dirt. And so when you walk through with open toe sandals, your feet get pretty nasty. If I can use this word on a Sunday morning, they get pretty crusty and they get grimy. Some of you are scared of feet, right? Some of you just petrified of feet. Somebody wiggles their toes at you, you jump back. I mean, just some people are not feet people. And Jews, for the most part, didn't like to do that. When, so when you would come in somebody's house, they would wash your feet. This is still a custom in ancient cultures. I was in India. I went to a village. I was wearing Gore-Tex boots. It was hot. My feet were sweating. I sit down in this courtyard, and like this 85-year-old lady comes up to me, and this brother's like, dude, take your boots off. I was like, bro, if I take my boots off right now, she's going to pass out because my feet stink so bad. But I had to take my Gore-Tex boots off. You probably saw this in Sri Lanka, Ashley. And this 85-year-old lady grabs my nasty, sweaty feet. and she it is, it is humiliating to do that. 
And in Jewish culture, even a Jewish slave wouldn't wash feet. It was only designated for Gentiles. The dogs would wash the feet. And you see, the Jews had their feet towards the wall because you didn't even acknowledge the person that washed your feet. They were just there to do that job. Well, check this out. We're in the middle of supper and feet hadn't been washed, which tells you two things. When Jesus booked the room, he didn't get like the extra add-on servant package. You know what I mean? The Lord is frugal, right? He's benevolent and generous. But what it tells you also is at that moment in the middle of supper, feet haven't been washed yet. Nobody in the room thinks it's their job. They all think it is beneath them to wash. And doesn't it doesn't make that attitude even more exemplified, but they were arguing about I'm the greatest. It could have been that feet hadn't been washed. Bro, somebody needs to wash feet. Well, I'm the greatest. I ain't doing it. All this is, see, see how the text comes alive? This blew my mind this week. So they're all leaning in, feet to the wall. Everybody's ignoring the fact that feet stink and they're grimy and they're crusty and hadn't been washed. So the head of the company stands up. He walks to the side. He washes his hands. He, afford, he, he takes on the lowest form of a servant and he walks around and he starts grabbing people's feet and he starts washing them. You know what I want you to see? That Jesus, Lord of all, became servant of all. Jesus, Lord of all, became servant of all. And of course, there was a social aspect to this. They needed to be clean. I mean, yeah, your mama raised you. You're not supposed to have dirty feet at the table. But even more in the heart of Jesus, it's not to make them socially acceptable. It is to make them kingdom usable. You guys are really going to change the world when you're sitting around in the context of me offering myself for your sins and you're going to boast and brag and kind of, you know, bump elbows with each other and have He-Man chest bump. I'm the best. I'm the best. You really going to do that? Okay, let me show you. I'm the greatest. I invited you to my meal. But I'm going to be consecrated as the Father's own and I'm going to take my outer robe off. I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to look like the lowest of the low and then I'm going to wash your feet. You know what this teaches us? This teaches us that no one is too great to serve. And this teaches us that no one is below being served. The greatest of all, not just the greatest in that room, not just the greatest in Jerusalem, not just the greatest in Israel, not just the greatest in that hemisphere, but we're talking about the Lord of all creation who upholds the universe by the word of his power. Stooping down and grabbing all of Peter's nasty, grimy feet and washing. A job that even the lowest Jew wouldn't do, Jesus did. No one is too great to serve, but it also tells us no one is below being served. There's a time in our life when we come to the place as a Christian and we say, well, I just can't serve that person. You're forgetting how Jesus has served you. God may call you to serve your enemy. That's hard. People that have hurt you and used you. But we come to find out in the Christian life that no matter what people do to me horizontally, it will never compare to how I was rebellious and sinful towards God vertically in my sin before I knew Jesus. And if he served me in spite of who I was, guess what? I can serve anyone. One of our heroes in the faith in India, a guy named M.A. Thomas, had this statement, everyone is valuable to God. 
He took care of lepers. He would go to lepers' houses, and these leper women whose fingers had rotted off because of gangrene, they would knead dough and make little chapatis. And he would say, sister, bring more. Your food is so good. All the rest of us would be scared that leprosy would get mixed in when we would eat. His son threw some to the dogs, and he said, sister, bring more. My, my son thinks your food is so great. <laughs> Serves dowry castaways. Men get tired of being married to their wife. They want more money because of the dowry system. So they set their wives on fire and maim them so that they can divorce them and marry someone else and get more money. M.A. Thomas would look at a half-burned woman and say, you're valuable to God, let me serve you. Kids that get left on the street, whose parents leave them. Widows whose husbands have died. The statement, everyone is valuable to God, is the heart of Jesus. And so, listen, listen to, to how this ties together. Christ is saying, I not only look forward and, and I see your sin, and I see your unbelief, and I'm going to go ahead to Jerusalem anyway. Jesus looks at Peter, and he looks at Andrew, and he looks at John, and he looks at Simon, and he looks at Philip, and he looks at Nathaniel, and he's thinking, in a few hours, these dudes are going to run. John and Peter are going to hang behind. John's going to stay pretty true to the end. Peter's going to chicken out in front of a 12-year-old. Guess what? I'm serving you anyway, guys. So it's not just that Christ set his face to Jerusalem to die for us, but as a Christian, Christ sticks with us and sets his face to serve us. It's his model of humility. Third this morning, what fuels us to serve? It is the call to be like Christ. Peter, as he was often to do, would speak up. Verse 6, in the midst of this foot washing, he comes to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? We only have record of Peter talking, and I think it's notable there, is because Peter... <laughs> was the only one with probably the nerve to speak up. It was absolute silence in the room. Can you imagine that? Master, rabbi, Lord, son of God, Messiah. He's assumed the form of the lowest of the low, and he's grabbing my feet, and he's washing, and he comes to Peter. Now, we're not going to rip Peter here, because Peter responded in the right way. Lord, you're going to wash my feet? Something wrong with that, Lord. Something is, is radically wrong with that. Verse 7, Jesus answered, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Peter said never four times to Jesus throughout the Gospels. You're never going to die on the cross. <laughs> You're never going to wash my feet. I'm never going to deny you. And then even in Acts, Lord, I've never eaten anything that's unclean. And every time Jesus says, uh, never say never. And Jesus makes his point. You're never going to wash my feet. I am not going to let you serve me in this way. And what does Christ say? Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. For someone to become a Christian, they have to let Christ become the lowest of the low because only in his humiliation and death and sacrifice and resurrection can you have a part with him. We learn here, to refuse Christ is not to have him. To refuse Christ is not to have him. Peter, if you don't let me serve you, 
you, you, you have no share in me. Listen to me this morning. Someone that dwells in Mississippi, someone that lives in South Mississippi, those of us that live in the Bible Belt, some of you grew up in church, some of you didn't grow up in church. Check this out. To become a Christian means that you come to the end of yourself, that you can never save yourself by your own works, by your own righteousness, by your own religion, and you must allow, allow Christ to serve you. You must. You must. There's been no other offering for sin except the Son of God slain for us. Peter, always interesting, then turns around and says, Okay, Lord, don't just wash my feet only, but wash my hands and my head. Dude, he goes to the other extreme. All right, if we're going to wash, I'll stand here. You can, you can scrub me down with a pressure washer, Lord. If, if washing is what it takes to, <laughs> to, to have part in you, <laughs> all of it. <laughs> we commend Peter's Loyalty, But Jesus said in verse 10, the one who has bathed doesn't need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, not every one of you. What he's saying is, listen, Peter, you're, you're clean. He would say this over in John 15. You're clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Peter, you belong to me. You, you belong to me. Peter, what I'm saying is, because you believe in me, I want you to understand now you need to be like me. To share with me, to have part with me, is to not only allow me to serve you, but how I serve you then emboldens you to serve other people. What does this mean? We, like Jesus, know others and still serve them. Christ knew you and yet died for you. Christ knows you even as a believer with our failures and our weaknesses, and what do we find the Son of God continually doing? Serving us. And so to be like Christ is to know who someone is, and to know possible hang-ups, and to know quirks, and to know failures, and to know weaknesses, and say, bro, I'm here for you anyway. That's what he's saying. And when we think about what it means inside the church to serve each other. It means going to a pair of grimy, crusty, nasty feet and being like, I'm here for you. That doesn't scare me away because I find myself every morning when I go to prayer in Jesus, Jesus says, hey, Luke, let me clean those feet. <laughs> let me wipe those feet off. Is my salvation in question? No. my sanctification look at what he says verse 12 when he washed their feet and put on outer garments and resumed his place he said to them do you understand what I've done to you you call me teacher and lord for you're right for so I am if I then your lord and teacher have washed your feet you also ought to wash one another's feet for I have given you an example and you should do also just as I have done to you what Christ is saying I served you so that you can serve others. Here's where the gospel is extremely practical in the life of each other. I need my feet cleaned. So brother, here's my feet. Brother, you need your feet cleaned, so give me your feet. Sister, it's been a rough week, and I, I blew up yesterday. I yelled at my kids. Everything's jacked up. 
Can you pray with me? My feet are dirty. And you know what gospel-centered people do? They look down at their brother's feet. They say, yeah, man, that is a nasty big toenail. Give it to me. I want to serve you. It's a picture. And this is why foot washing isn't an ordinance in the church. We, we baptize and we take the Lord's Supper. We only find foot washing really one other time in the New Testament. And it's a picture of a widow who served the saints. But it's this picture. And the picture is as we do life together, as we live among each other, as we pray for each other and love each other and encourage each other, what we're doing is we're being vulnerable and saying, hey, I need you in my life. And you answer back, I'm going to serve you like Jesus served me. Sometimes we don't like showing our feet. Sometimes we don't like admitting that we got issues. But he says, as I've done to you, do to each other. To live out the gospel means to embrace others who believe in Jesus like Jesus has embraced you. Weaknesses, failures, sins, and all. Jesus was equipping these guys to serve him and serve his church. I want us to see this. Justin, come up here, please. You're going to take your shoes off. And your socks. be like Jesus is to take his gospel his word his truth and to humble ourselves when someone's hurting when someone struggling when someone needs help it's to say, brother, give me that foot. The blood of Jesus, God's son, cleanses us from all sin. Yeah, you shouldn't have done that, but it's okay because when you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And brother, I can't repent for you and I can't do all that for you, but I'm here for you. And by God's grace, I'm going to walk with you and we're going to see these feet get cleaned. And then we're going to dry you off because there's work to be done. And these feet that get grimy and get nasty and this heart that has a bad attitude and this mouth that doesn't say everything that needs to be said, we're going to clean back up and we're going to march on because there's work to be done. And we're going to take the other foot. Probably shouldn't have touched my eye after I touched your foot, but the water is the water. We're going to take the water and we're going to say, Christ, a few years back, dealt in my life the exact same thing, and I struggle, and I still struggle, 
but I found that the gospel is enough and Christ is enough and he has taught me by his word and he is bringing me out of this and because maybe I'm just a few steps up the road from you, I just want to let you know that I'm here for you. Sometimes, church, you find yourself at the feet of Judas Iscariot knowing that he'll never turn back and that he'll never repent and you know what? You're called to serve anyway. Sometimes you know that even in a few hours, you're going to be denied by those closest to you, and yet you still embrace the feet, and you still wipe. That's what it means to be like Christ. Do we bat a thousand? Sometimes we strike out eight times in a row. But just as Christ is committed to us, we live out the gospel by being committed to those who are on the same journey as us. So as we look forward to Easter, it's, it's, it's not just the fact that he came and he, he died. Praise God he did. Praise God that my sin has been taken away. But it's more than that. It is that this Easter message empowers me and equips me as I follow him to walk with my brothers and sisters and serve them as Jesus has served me. That's what it means to be gospel driven. It's to want in other people what God is doing in me also. Let's pray this morning. Would you bow with me and pray? You're good. Thank you. Some of us this morning aren't clean. We haven't believed the message of the gospel and I just want to let you know this morning you can be saved today. The Son of God humbled himself. The Son of God became man. He laid aside his glory. He came down to this earth not to die for some of your sin or part of your sin. He came to die for all of your sin. And today, if you repent and believe, you can be saved you can be made clean, you can be washed, you can be made new. There's no magic words, there's no magic formula. It is your heart letting go of your sinful life and turning to the Lamb of God and saying, I trust you completely to take away all my sin. If that's you this morning, turn to him. Believe the gospel. Some of you, God has put a Peter in your life. He's put an Andrew in your life. He's put a Mary Magdalene in your life. And this morning you need to say, son of God, I am willing to take dirty feet and find myself over and over again, encouraging, washing, helping, strengthening so that this brother and this sister can be sanctified, be made like Jesus. Let the Spirit speak to us and let the church hear what the Spirit says. So maybe you need to pray. We're going to sing. Maybe you need to pray first. Maybe you need to grab Pastor Justin, say, I need to talk. I'll be around. I'll be up here. We've got men and women in this place who would love to speak to you, encourage you, walk with you. But it's got to be more than Sunday morning. We serve as he has served us. Father, 
thank you for scripture. Thank you for truth. It teaches us, it rebukes us, it corrects us, it encourages us, it strengthens us, it equips us. Lord, I want to be like Jesus. I want to be like Jesus. I want to serve as you have first served me. Work this word in our hearts. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. This altar's open if you need to pray. If you need to speak to someone, we're here at the front. Let's stand and let's worship this Christ.